Welcome to Digital Detectives, reports from the battlefront. We'll discuss computer forensics, electronic discovery, and information security issues and what's really happening in the trenches. Not theory, but practical information that you can use in your law practice, right here on the Legal Talk Network. Welcome to the 94th edition of Digital Detectives. We're glad to have you with us. I'm Sharon Nelson, president of Sensei Enterprises, a digital forensics, cybersecurity, and information technology firm in Fairfax, Virginia. And I'm John Simic, vice president of Sensei Enterprises. Today on Digital Detectives, our topic is effective cybersecurity awareness training for employees. Before we get started, I'd like to thank our sponsors. We'd like to thank our sponsor, SiteLock, the global leader in website security solutions. Learn more at sitelock.com forward slash legal forward slash digital detectives. We'd also like to thank our sponsor, PINow.com. If you need a private investigator you can trust, visit PINow.com to learn more. Today we're flying solo, discussing a topic that Sharon and I lecture on all the time these days. Employee cybersecurity training has become all the rage over the last two years. So why don't you get us started, Sharon? Sure thing. Um, We could maybe start by reviewing some of the statistics that have no doubt contributed to the popularity of our training, which now we're giving three or four times every month, which is an amazing uptick from two years ago when we weren't doing any training. People all of a sudden want that for their folks. So from the 2017 ABA Legal Tech Report, And the new report, we have a draft of, but we don't have the numbers yet for this. But at that time, 22% of firms said they had been breached at some point. And of course, that number would actually be higher because in a lot of large firms, people don't find out about breaches. There's, There's just not a need to know if they can contain it at the top. And then over one third of firms with 10 to 99 lawyers were compromised in 2017 alone. So that's a lot of compromises of the smaller firms. And, and I think that's mattered to a lot of people. And then you have statistics like, suppose you have a social media policy. Well, that's supposed to do something, right? But in plain fact, the studies have shown that 77% of people ignore the policies and they'll make end runs around them in the tests on phishing, it's the same 4% of your employees who over and over and over again click on that attachment or click on the link in the phishing email. And then, of course, 50% of your employees are sharing their credentials for various and sundry reasons of their own. But there's just so many statistics showing that we're just not very safe that the training has really become increasingly popular. So, John, tell us about DLA Piper. I know what we hear all the time is if DLA Piper could be brought to its knees, what chance do the rest of us have? Yeah, that's the big thing there is that DLA Piper is the largest law firm in the world, number one by revenue. And last year, they got hammered pretty bad. June 27th, they lost their emails, their phones were down, some of their network was taken offline. Some of it was precautionary, but it manifested itself initially in what was believed to be a ransomware attack happening over in, I think think it was Spain, if my memory's right. Wasn't it, Sharon? One of their offices over there? Originally, I had heard that. And then um, in one of my other cybersecurity panels, one of the experts said that they actually traced it somewhere else. So maybe not. (laughs) (laughs) 
But you know how these things change. The initial story and the final story have nothing to do with one another. But I gather that this turned out to be a form of NotPetya. Yeah, it was NotPetya malware initially. So it was actually trying to destroy things. And it was exploited by the NSA had a tool, Eternal Blue is what it was called, that was, quote, stolen by the, the shadow brokers and then released in the wild. So that was used to deliver this malware, and DLA Piper happened to be one of the unlucky folks that that contracted it. But they were down for almost a week, and I mean totally down, like hard down. And they had it in July 3rd, they issued an email statement that said that they were bringing their systems back up. So now slowly they're starting to get back online. But we really don't know what the source, the initial source of the problem was. But when you think about that, it's such a large organization that way, something isn't right. Something wasn't engineered right within their technology in order to to go down that hard. These days, it doesn't cost you a lot of money. Email as an example, you should be able to, as a minimum, spool email or use some sort of another cloud service as your backup. And so the outside world wouldn't really even know that you were impacted at all. Or if you were impacted, you should be able to recover very quickly. And I know that's one of the things we do for our clients. You know, they're back online within minutes, if not within an hour or so. So something technology-wise wasn't, wasn't right at DLA Piper for, for obvious reasons. But that's certainly the example that a lot of the, especially the solo small folks use is when they hear about that. And then we start talking about cybersecurity awareness and they're going, well, wait a minute, you know, DLA Piper, they're, they're, they're this number one in the world by revenue and it happened to them. So what can we do? So there are some things, though, that the smaller folks can do and the smaller firms can do uh, in order to increase their cybersecurity awareness for their employees and therefore minimize the risk, because that's really what this is all about. Right, Sharon? Absolutely. And and down that vein, there are some tips for employers who, who would like to do cybersecurity training. And you know we've done enough of them now that we kind of see what works and what doesn't work and who does it right. And generally speaking, it appears that it's not a good idea to do any of this at the end of the day. People are tired. It's not a good idea to do this first thing in the morning because people show up late. So most firms have settled on doing it at lunch, which seems to be the perfect compromise because people are, in fact, there. So, and having food, you might think that's a bit of a distraction, but as long as you let them get their food and then sit down, it doesn't seem to be. So we've liked that as a a way of doing it. Also make it mandatory and make them sign in. Seriously, they will do anything to avoid coming to these things. And the partners particularly will plead that there's this case or that case and they need it as much as anybody else. So make them sign in and make it mandatory. Make them silence their cell phones because Otherwise, the phones will be out and they can't concentrate on two things at one time, no matter how much they think they can. No laptops. And I think the best thing to do is not to have cybersecurity training done by somebody who's in-house who provides your IT support, but actually by an outside third party. And the reason I think that is because to them, it's just, well, that's that's just Jack. That's just Jill. You know, they have a relationship with these people. It may be good, maybe bad whatever. But the big bat is swung, I think, by outsiders, especially if they do, in fact, know something. And if they have a gift for doing both entertainment and education, because you're going to lose them. If you try to just teach them without any entertainment, it just doesn't work. So, for instance, as you know, John, one of the things I do is true confessions. And people (laughs) have to raise their hand and fess up if they've ever done one of a certain series of things, you know, including sending the wrong 
wrong attachment or including the wrong person in an email. And, and they get tickled because you and I always participate. So our hands go up because we've done it too. And then they laugh to think even the experts have done it. So that's an immersive way to educate and entertain. And so we try to do stuff like that and, and other, other speakers do as well. Now, what should you expect to pay for this kind of thing? Frankly, doing the kind of thing we do for a business in a little bit, we consider this as as a loss leader because if we go in and do an hour for $500 or two hours for 1000 people tend to come back to us for cybersecurity or IT work or forensics. So, you know, that's our pricing is a little bit based on that. And you will find very, very expensive pricing too. That's the other side. So do look around, you know, get if you know other law firms, you know, ask them who they have used so that you can get somebody who can really do quality training. And I don't think any kind of online training is the same as in person. I definitely think it needs to be in person. But don't you also think that it's an advantage too, if they can relate to the industry, like law firms in this case, and to what are the hot buttons? right? For the paralegals and the office managers and, you know, the the partners and all those kinds of things. Absolutely. And I think that's, of course, one reason why my being an actively practicing lawyer is very useful um, because I understand both the, the ethical implications for the law firm as well as just how the business runs. Well, let's talk a little bit about what the, the big kahuna is these days, and that's phishing. So what phishing is, for hopefully our listeners know what it is, but I'll run through it quickly here. If not, it's really email or some communication mechanism that is purports to come from somebody that or somewhere that it really isn't. So it's a falsified email message. And you've probably seen these things show up in your, your inbox, uh, you know, a FedEx delivery notice or a e-greeting card uh, congratulatory thing or, or something along those lines. But the whole purpose of this broad-based uh, phishing emails is to get the user to do something, to click on something, to open an attachment or do something like that where malware then gets delivered to their machine or something bad is going to happen to them. In contrast to that, so that, that's the wide brush approach of phishing emails. But there's also very targeted phishing, and that's called spear phishing. So now you've got a small subset. So you're maybe you're targeting a particular law firm or a particular case. A particular case might be an attack where somebody's been watching it and they're trying to get you to wire money as a result of settlement proceedings or whatever. So there's those kinds of things. And then it takes a little, then what, what, this industry keeps making up terms, right, Sharon? Then they're smishing. <laughs> <laughs> which is fish, fishing by a text message. Right. And we even we even did a podcast on digital uh, detectives about smishing. Remember that one? <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. So that's really what we're, uh, and that's the single biggest mechanism, at least today, in trying to deliver malware, trying to infect something, trying to compromise and get access to people's data is through phishing. I mean, it's a, it's a huge thing. And it's the human being, they're counting on the human being, aka your employees, your personnel that's in your law firm, to take some action, to click on something or to open something. And so that's what we're, when we do these training sessions, we're trying to educate about phishing and how to potentially recognize this because to be honest, they're getting better and better, aren't they? Oh, they are. And and of course, somebody doesn't necessarily even know they've been fished because you click on a link, you know, you click on the attachment and it might make no sense to you. But sometimes you actually go to a website that looks perfectly normal. You have no idea that malware is being downloaded behind the scenes. So they just don't get that. 
And you might wonder why so many people click. And there's been a fair amount of research done on that. The number one reason is actually curiosity. So yeah, apparently if you have as an attachment racy New Year's photos, we are compelled, <laughs> compelled <laughs> to open the racy New Year's photos. So that this is from a FishMe study that was done before FishMe was acquired by Cofence. The number two reason is fear. And we had that here in Virginia. Some of our listeners will know that I am a former Virginia State Bar president. So I follow all this stuff that happens with the Virginia State Bar. And we had an epidemic of people receiving phishing emails that said a bar complaint against them had been filed and was attached. And another dead giveaway is it said, you know, you had to respond in 24 hours. Now, needless to say, the bar does not attach or send by email bar complaints. And you certainly would not have to respond in 24 hours, but the fear made a lot of people open it up. So we actually had to send out an alert. And we were, I think, one of four, five, six states that ended up sending out those alerts because we were plagued by them. So anytime you see urgency, which is factor number three, you need to stop and think. And urgency is usually a part of some of the phishing emails where they say the boss needs this done right away. So whenever a partner needs something done, people tend to move a little too quickly and they're not really thinking. So now they'll click on something because somebody powerful needs something. The fourth reason is recognition. We may have noticed uh, amongst all of us that lawyers have a, just a trace of vanity from time to time. And so if they have received some sort of an award or recognition and there is a link to that or an attachment showing what they got, they are inclined to click on that. So that's problematic. And then, you know, really these, these phishing emails are getting better and better and better because now they're hiring native English speakers to help them compose. And they even will delineate between English speakers and English speakers who speak British or Canadian English, which is an entirely separate language, as we all know. Um, so they know how to write that kind of English, too. So it's a lot harder to recognize, you know, just for the poor grammar and, and the, the messed up words, et cetera, et cetera. But the subject lines have gotten a lot better. And there's really kind of a science now to what kind of subject line to put. So there have been all kinds of them, building evacuation plans. That's been very successful because of all the active shooting incidents we've had. You need to reset your password. Well, that's, you know, people get those actual subject lines from their own internal folks. So that's been very successful. I think a couple of ones that made us laugh was employee bonuses to be announced on Monday. Everybody, of course, needs to know that. That's curiosity. And of course, you might be one of the lucky ones. And then the other one that got about 100% was list of employees to be fired on Monday. And you can see how that would be alluring. You need to know that. And I will tell you that we send out phishing emails here at Sensei too. And the last couple of ones that we have, have gone out were a small firm, 16 employees. But we have had uh, three to four people each time to click on the phishing email. <laughs> now, mind you, they are very good emails. They're well done, but still, it's really nothing out of the realm of what might be real. And one of them actually had a picture of three cute chicks dancing. How could they be dangerous? And it claimed to have an email from an admirer at work who wanted to compliment you or something. And so people clicked on that, including, I think it was, was it two of our IT guys and our CEO? 
Poe, who has forever been hanging his head in disgrace since clicking on that. So, and he just said, it just seems so innocent. And he said, I was curious. <laughs> yeah, that's, that, yeah, that's what does it. All right. And that's what we lecture about. <laughs> well, before we move on to our next segment, let's take a quick commercial break. At least 80 of the 100 biggest law firms in the country have been hacked since 2011. Protect your firm and your clients from cyber attacks with SiteLock. Their industry-leading cloud-based suite of website security solutions includes website scanning, web application firewall, including DDoS mitigation, and 24-7, 365 U.S.-based customer support. Give your firm and your clients peace of mind knowing their information is secure. Learn more at sitelock.com forward slash legal forward slash digital detectives. Does your law firm need an investigator for a background check, civil investigation, or other type of investigation? PINow.com is a -a one-of-a-kind resource for locating investigators anywhere in the U.S. and worldwide. The professionals listed on PINow understand the legal constraints of an investigation, are up-to-date on the latest technology, and have extensive experience in many types of investigation, including workers' compensation and surveillance. Find a pre-screened private investigator today. Visit www.pinow.com. Welcome back to Digital Detectives on the Legal Talk Network. Today, our topic is effective cybersecurity awareness training for employees. So let's talk a little bit about attacks via social media. Now, these can come in all kinds of forms. There's just tons and tons and tons. So for instance, you could be in Facebook. This this actually happened to me. And you could click on a link that appeared to be totally innocent. And it could be that the image was infected, which you would have no way of knowing. And all of a sudden you get a pop-up and it already knows what model phone you have because of course you've allowed Facebook to know that. So it references your model of phone and then it tells you you have you know some kind of malware or something and you have to click below to fix the problem. Don't click below, that's a hint. So just, you know, leave that alone and, you know, find out on the internet how to take care of it, which usually means closing out all programs, clearing the cache and powering down the phones, which is worthwhile. We've also seen attacks, phishing attacks via social media using both Facebook and Twitter. So you have to be very, very careful about those. There are all kinds of social media attacks. Coupons have been big. And what was the most recent one I told you about, John? It was $175 for who was it do you remember no it wasn't bed bath and beyond um no that's a real one that we clipped out no i know it was this past this just last week (laughs) yeah it was just last week that it was a a new one i can't remember now which store it was but 175 i mean that ought to raise your eyebrows anyway that that's probably too much but we've seen them for instance bed bath and beyond we've seen home depot we've seen ross i mean there's all kinds of things so you have to be very very careful on social media and people will play on your emotions so if there's been a disaster somewhere. They'll say that they have a real story, you know, something that pulls at your heartstrings so you want to click on it. You know, resist that if you don't know the source. (laughs) So some of the other things that to be wary of are, and the FBI has kind of slapped all this stuff together and it's called business email compromises, BEC. So it's like any 
agency in the government. We have acronyms for everything, right? But it's really big business. And, and what BECs or the business email compromises are, primarily it manifests itself in, in two main ways that we see a lot of. And, and one is where it's instructions to wire money or send a check or, or some of those kinds of things. So it's, it's a f- for financial gain. Or it has to do with payroll information, W-2 type information. And, and that's kind of seasonal. And I know the IRS every year sends out notices to people warning them around the end of the year these things tend to get much, much larger, these phishing attacks where the BEC comes out and it says, well, and it purports to come from maybe the chief financial officer or the CEO or the president of the company. And it tends to be going to somebody in the payroll group or in HR or whatever it is. And it'll, it'll say, we have a new vendor that we're going to be doing work with and we need to have all the employees' information or maybe it's a new benefits package or something like that. And can you send all of last year's W-2 information and social security numbers, all that stuff, to this new person, this new vendor? And these people will go and send it out. And then what happens is they receive this information and they go and file f- fraudulent tax returns. And that's one way to do it. Another way is to, and we've seen this, as you know, Sharon, in legal cases where the case itself has been under target, where the settlement proceedings and somebody's been watching it, they do a little bit of advanced reconnaissance and they send an email purporting to come from maybe opposing counsel or from the opposing party, or maybe it's your own client with a change in the wiring instructions and how to send money over to someplace. And there's usually, as you had said earlier, right, that it's expediency, uh, you know, there's a big rush for things. So these things tend to come like on the last day of Friday of the week. And I need to have this done by the end of business, that those kinds of things. And so it gets people jumping. But as the FBI pointed out, it's big money. I mean, between October of 2013 and May of 2018, they estimate over $12 billion has been tagged towards uh, BEC attacks. It's just amazing, isn't it? Yep. There's so many things to train on, and, and here we only have such a short amount of time. But another one that we, we focus on is social engineering, because a really good social engineer can turn your employees into puppets. So we all have to do better about training our employees. One in three employees will fall for social engineering, and there's all kinds of social engineering. But let me give you a couple of the prime examples we see. Number one is somebody calling, usually from Microsoft. Microsoft. And of course, they're not from Microsoft. Surprise! But they claim to be, and they tell you there's something wrong with, with your computer, and they, they may just want money, and so they're going to fix it, but they want access to your computer, which of course you should never do. They may take you to a website, in fact, which looks like a Microsoft website, and so you might be inclined to do some of this. But falling for these calls, and no, Apple support does not make any of these calls either. If somebody from these companies to be calling you, it's not from those companies. They just don't do it. And how do they know that something's wrong with your machine? What they're going to do is they're going to access your machine and they're going to take you to something which is perfectly innocuous, but it looks like maybe it's not innocuous. And so you're going to be fooled a little bit and go along. And we have had partners in law firms, much too smart for falling for this, but they've been with these people for an hour and a half, you know, and so they're compromising their machine. If you're lucky, they're not about compromising your machine. They just want your money and they want a quick three or $400 to quote unquote fix your machine. And then they go away and they're not compromising your data, but they could be compromising your data. So don't do that. And the other thing we see is calls from what purports to be someone from your IT company, because of course, if 
if you think it's someone from your IT company and it's not hard to find out who your IT company is, then you're very likely, if they say this is, you know, Adam at, at your IT company, then you're very likely to give Adam your credentials if, if Adam can make up a credible story about why he doesn't have the list or whatever and he needs to fix something by the end of the day and he knows the partner's name and he's been in touch with the partner and yada, yada. So be careful of that one as well. But also we've seen recently too, Sharon, is the, uh, the message box that pops up with a toll-free number for you to call. Oh, yes, <laughs> yes, yes. Good one. Yes. So that's one of the latest iterations of that. But the oldie but goodie is still ransomware. So ransomware, for those folks that don't know, is malware whose intent is to encrypt or make your uh, information inaccessible and then hoping that you pay a ransom to get the decryption key to decrypt that information. So certainly uh, that has been going on for the last several years. It's still at a high growth rate, but you know, don't pay that ransom. That's the going in advice. Although when it's a business decision, you may end up paying it, but understand that you're probably only going to get that decryption key, a valid working decryption key in about 50% of the cases, at least recently. But the FBI even acknowledges that, you know, they say don't pay it. But if it means that, you know, you're going to be out of business for a long period of time, it's going to impact your business, you might want to consider that. And I think it was the, was there a, a, a medical institution right out in California, Sharon, that decided that it was cheaper to pay the ransom. They could recover faster than it would be for them to restore all of their data. By the time they took all their data and, and put it all back in, they would have been out of business much longer than if they actually paid the ransom. So they made that business decision to do that. Hospitals frequently have made that decision. Yep. Well, because they want to get back online very, very quickly. I mean, they well, should. And, and, and there could be deaths associated yep. With, yep. with them, and that's just not an acceptable risk compared to the amount of cryptocurrency that's being asked for as ransom. Right. So the new kid on the block coming around is called crypto jacking. And crypto jacking is, again, it's malware, but... What it does is it actually uses the computer resources of your machine to mine for cryptocurrencies. The big one today is Monero, that cryptocurrency, because it is an anonymous cryptocurrency. They're not doing Bitcoins or any of those things. And it's more efficient. You don't need as much power to generate these, the Monero cryptocurrency. But it gets installed two different ways. And typically they'll go and attack the machine or attack you both ways. One is through a phishing email where, again, you try to click on something, you try to do whatever. It might do a pop-up or it might not do anything. It might send you to a website like you said, Sharon. But yet in the background, it has installed installed software in your, your computer. So it's actually using your electricity and your processing power in the background to mine these cryptocurrencies. A more common way that, that we're seeing recently is where a website is compromised and you visit it, but there's no software that's installed to your machine. It's actually automatically launching JavaScript code in the background that then is going and mining and, and generating this process to create these cryptocurrencies. And if you think about it, it doesn't need a lot of power and you really don't have to be greedy. This is the reason why it's become very popular among the, the cyber criminals recently is because it's relatively low risk. And you don't need to worry about trying to infect somebody because you're not, you don't have to install software, if, especially if you're using that, the web browser compromise with the JavaScript. And if you have this whole botnet of all these people that are doing this, you get, you think about thousands of machines and they're just generating a little bit of cryptocurrency. You can make some, some big bucks. I mean, people are making, you know, $300,000 a month doing this. 
But I think, and, and maybe I'll let you expound on one of the, the latest things now, though, is, is the sextortion campaigns, right, Sharon, where they, <laughs> they said they You know why out. he says that? Come on, come on. The reason well, because why I never got one. Is, I never got I know. one. <laughs> you're, you're not one of the cool kids. You're not one of the cool kids. And I'm telling you, so many people got that sextortion email where it basically the subject line is a password. In my case, it was a password that back in the innocent days when we all reused passwords, I had reused it a lot back, and we're talking talking the beginning of the digital era here, but I recognized are, it are immediately. Are you that old? <laughs> I, I, don't ask if you want to go home with me, dear. So I, <laughs> I looked at that and, of course, was struck by the fact that it was one of my known old passwords. And when I looked at the email, of course, it wanted a payment in Bitcoin of $3,200. Uh, and it, what the author claimed was that the author had been filming me watching pornography. So both had captured the, what was on the screen and me as I was watching it. And you can imagine some people would have a great deal of fear uh, if that had in fact <laughs> happened for obvious reasons. I, on the other hand, was fearless. So knowing that I had not been doing this, I simply ignored the thing. But we had people call us and mention no names oh, yeah. here, John, oh, yeah. not oh, even yeah. professions, but yep. we had people who had sleepless nights, <laughs> which told us something about them. We, um, we had relatives and, too. <laughs> and Yes, and calling us first thing in the morning because they were so afraid. So anyway, that's extortion. So let's move on to our last topic, and we'll do this a little bit quickly because we're toward the end of our time here, and that is passwords. As I mentioned before, 50% of people share them. People reuse them all the time. The average user has about 40 sites that require a password, but only five passwords. So what does that tell you? And using very weak passwords. So the list of passwords, you know, it's the, the most common passwords of 2017, it's the, the usual culprits, you know, one, two, three, four, five, six, password, QWERTY, let me in. I love let me in. Football was on the list. I love you was on the list. So there's, you know, but these are obviously all ones that have been compromised in the past, not smart to use. So we train employees about that and not reusing these passwords and using the same password over and over again. And also there are new rules about passwords. The National Institute of Standards and Technology has now declared after a study by Carnegie Mellon that they agree that length beats complexity. Now, if you add a little complexity, you can make it stronger still. But a password that is between 14 and 64 characters, and no, I don't have a 64-character password and never will, but you can use a passphrase and maybe just intersperse with a special character at the end or in the middle. So we talk about about the fact that the old Batman sitcom, Robin was always saying, holy something Batman. So if you had, and this is a real line from the series, if you had holy switcheroo Batman with an exclamation point as a passphrase, that is a strong passphrase. So that is something you can do. And we, we teach them about password managers because, of course, that makes remembering passwords a non-issue. You only have to remember the password for the password manager, and, and that's it. And though there's much more we could say, we are at the end of our time. So I will say that 
this podcast today covered only the tip of the iceberg, and that's an understatement because this is easily a two-hour presentation, and we've done two hours on it before. But we did try to hit some of the high points quickly in the relatively short time we had. Believe it or not, if you do get good speakers, your employees will be fascinated by the training, and they will learn enough to make a difference to your security. In fact, each time you train, they say your risk of being successfully fish goes down by 20%. So do you have any final words, John? Yeah, I think just, you know, don't count on the technology. Too many people think that, well, I've got antivirus software, I've got a firewall, whatever. And they're trying to count on the technology to stop these attacks and to make them safe. And, you know, it's really your people. It's it's your carbon-based units. They're the ones that need to practice smart computing. And that's what this training is all about. Well said. Well, that does it for this edition of Digital Detectives. And remember, you can subscribe to all the editions of this podcast at LegalTalkNetwork.com or on Apple Podcasts. And if you enjoyed our podcast, please rate us on Apple Podcasts. And you can find out more about Sensei's digital forensics, technology, and cybersecurity services at SENSEIENT.com. We'll see you next time on Digital Detectives. Thanks for listening to Digital Detectives on the Legal Talk Network. Check out some of our other podcasts on LegalTalkNetwork.com and in iTunes.